Let me invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel. As we continue working our way through Mark's Gospel, we've come to chapter 13, much of which is the Olivet Discourse. So we continue to look at the Olivet Discourse tonight. That was a discourse or a teaching of our Lord, an extended teaching of our Lord as he sat on the Mount of Olives, which was just east of Jerusalem, as he and his disciples were there and they had this grand view of the temple. So the, the Mount of Olives is where they are at. And I want you to recall as uh, we come to this text again that Jesus has left the temple for good. It's Tuesday, Friday will be the day that he will be crucified. So it's Passion Week and he's been in the temple. There's been all sorts of conflict and he has finally left the temple. And as he was leaving the temple, he talked about the destruction of the temple because the disciples have said, look at these great stones and they were massive stones and look at these buildings, how magnificent they are. And Jesus predicts and look again at it in Mark 13. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. As he's sitting there and they're looking at it, not one stone will be left upon another. This is what leads to the Olivet Discourse. Because the disciples then come to him after this, asking him, look at verse 4 again, tell us when will these things be, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. So they're asking this question, when, Jesus, will this prophecy of yours be fulfilled? When will this temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign? What should we look for that these things are about to happen? So keep that in mind. And I want you also to remember that as we look at the parallel accounts, so you could also study Matthew 24 and 25, you could study Luke 21, but in Matthew's account, in Matthew 24, that question we see was not just about when will all these things be fulfilled, but in their mind, the destruction of the temple could mean nothing less than the end of the age. So they also ask, when will we be looking or when should we be expecting? What sign should we look for that you will come and the end of the age will be brought in? So let's read this again. And we're going to look at verses 14 to 25 tonight, the second major section of the Olivet Discourse. And here the interpretive challenges increase. Because as we read, you'll see the abomination of desolation is something that we have to deal with. What some people call the great tribulation and the meaning of such things as we find in verse 24 about the sun being dark and the moon not giving its lights, the stars of heaven falling. And so what do these things mean? So there are many interpretive challenges as we come to a section like this. I'll read verses 1 to 4 again and then skip over to verse 14. So Mark 13, verse 1. Then as he, Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Then he began to answer them. And he was saying last time, take heed that you're not deceived. There's going to be signs like earthquakes and other things, nation rising against nation, wars, and so on. These are not so-called signs that the end is upon us. But he says the beginnings of sorrows. And then in verse 9, he began to say, watch out for yourselves because you're going to be persecuted. And he gives some words of encouragement in light of that persecution that they could expect. But now beginning at verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, Whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs or pseudo-Christs and false prophets, pseudo-prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Let's go again and ask the Lord's help as we look at his word tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come before you. We thank you that we can open up your word tonight. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit, as especially we feel our weakness tonight, as we come to a difficult text, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our understanding, that we might understand these words and draw benefit from them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, many of you know that I'm not from Kentucky, but I'm a native of Oklahoma, and in particular, Oklahoma City. I have some family here. And from time to time, when I go back, I don't always make the long drive, but I'll fly. And when I fly into Oklahoma City, sort of a game I like to play, if I'm coming in at the right angle, I like to try to figure out where I'm at. So maybe some of you have done this. You're coming into your hometown, you're very familiar, and you try to spot different landmarks. Maybe there's a lake or your your college or whatever it might be. So this is something I like to do. It's fascinating sometimes, the view from the air, and sometimes it's revealing. It's very different. It's one thing to walk around downtown Oklahoma City or Louisville, and another thing to fly by and to take in the big picture. 
And I say that because tonight what I want to do is we're taking this big chunk of Scripture with all of these difficult things is, is to do that, to fly past and consider that larger picture. I think that will be most helpful rather than getting into all the weeds of the difficulties and all the many debates and disagreements about these things. We're going to fly over, and I hope in doing that we won't miss the big picture, the main burdens of our Lord in giving these things to his disciples and also to us. There's words here for us as well. So we reminded ourselves last time that when we are studying end times, the last things, the things that we find in the Bible are not given to us in order to fuel speculation, but they're given primarily for very practical and pastoral reasons. And I tried to note that last time, all of the practical things that Jesus was saying to his disciples and the very pastoral things. And again, that comes out in a text like this. So we're going to try to focus on the things that Jesus focuses upon the practical pastoral matters, and try also to shed some light on the difficult things because we do need to deal with these sorts of things. Now, as we're looking at this and we come to something like this, we need to remember, as you might come to different views and you might study things and you might be confused, there are certain things that we have to say that we certainly know are true. The return of Christ, for example. It hasn't happened yet. It's in the future, but he is returning. The end of all things is coming, and we ought to be ready. So that much is sure, and we should all, we must all agree on these kinds of things, even if we don't agree on other interpretations of things in the text. Now, tonight, as we begin to look at a section here that focuses I believe, on events and circumstances leading up to and including the fulfillment of those words of Jesus in verse 2 when he says, Do you see these great buildings of the temple? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So this section here deals with things leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple that was in Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70. So remember their question, when will this happen? Jesus does answer that. And we see, he says, within this present generation. You find that in verse 30. And then their other question, well, what sign should we look for that will signal to us that these things are about to happen? Jesus also answers that. He says in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, and then he's going to go on to give other signs, but he says, this is a sign, and you will know when you see this that the time has come, that the time of Jerusalem's doom is near. It's probably safe to say that this is the most difficult section in the whole Gospel of Mark to rightly and also to confidently interpret. It's full of these debated issues. So we come to it, we should come to it with an extra measure of humility. We always should come to the text with humility, but especially on these sorts of texts, 
dealing with these kinds of matters. And we also need to come to it with the realization that within certain bounds, it's okay if we don't all come to the same conclusions. Now with that, let's jump right into the text. And the first thing that we see is the distressing days immediately before the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. So the distressing days, and it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say the awful or the terrible or the horrible days that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And you have this in verses 14 to 20. And the first thing that Jesus talks about is the sign or signal to flee to the mountains. Verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, some of you might have a translation that doesn't have that. It's debated whether or not that was in the original text of Mark, but without doubt, it's in the original text of Matthew. Just to note that. So when you see this, the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Do you see how practical this is? And how pastoral it is? Jesus is concerned that they know what the sign is and that they understand it so that when they see it, they can flee to safety. So it's very practical and pastoral because desolation and destruction and great tribulation are coming upon the land. And Jesus gives them clear instructions on how to escape it. Now, the instructions to flee are central to really this whole passage, and hence the title of this message is Flee to the Mountains. This applied to those who would be in the region or the province of Judea, as Jesus says here in the text in verse 14. Those in Judea should flee. And, of course, that included the capital city, Jerusalem, which was in Judea, where the temple sat. Now, we need to understand that this went against the common wisdom of the day because when there was an attacking force, the thought was to go to the walls of a city. And these were massive walls. And in fact, you can read about how the battering rams and so on had a very difficult time knocking down the walls of Jerusalem. So the people would have thought, when when you are in trouble, go to Jerusalem. Go to that mighty city with its big walls. But Jesus is saying, no, actually flee to the mountains. So this is contrary to the common instinct in those days. They would know that it's time to flee when they see the abomination of desolation. And he says, standing where it ought not. Matthew clarifies that and says, standing in the holy Place. So that means standing in the temple. When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, standing there, he says, then you will know that it's time to flee. Let's briefly consider what really is a cryptic reference here. 
the abomination of desolation. We even heard about abomination as we were reading Deuteronomy 17. An abomination is something generally that causes revulsion or extreme disgust. And here we're talking about something that's disgusting to God, something that is abhorred by God. So as you look in the Old Testament, as we just did, it's idols that are abhorred by God. It's idolatrous practices that are an abomination to God. And this abomination that Jesus talks about is somehow connected with desolation or with destruction, devastation. And in this case, it's the devastation of Jerusalem and its temple. This language is borrowed. It was used roughly 600 years before Jesus spoke these words sitting there on that Tuesday on the Mount of Olives. And these words were written by the prophet Daniel. They were given to him by revelation. And so I want us to see this in Daniel. We're told that we should be careful to understand this. And admittedly, it's less important for us to understand because we're not in Judea in the first century. But we should try to understand. If you want to turn to Daniel 9, you can see one of the key references here. And here in Daniel chapter 9, we see this language in a great revelation that's given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel. So Daniel chapter 9. I'm just going to read two verses, verses 26 and 27. There's a lot of details here I'm not going to comment on. Remember, we're flying. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Reference to Christ. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. And then it's used twice more in Daniel. Daniel 11.31, they shall take away the daily sacrifices from the temple, And place there in the temple, the holy place, the abomination of desolation. And then in chapter 12, verse 11 of Daniel, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. So you see the connection? It's a clear reference to this prophecy of Daniel some 600 years before Jesus spoke these words. And what this says, that there's going to be some kind of abomination, something abhorrent to God that would be placed in the temple and that the regular sacrifices of the temple would be done away with at that time. And many believe that this prophecy was fulfilled initially in 168 B.C., In 168 BC, there was a pagan king who set up an altar dedicated to Zeus on top of the altar of burnt offering. And then he sacrificed a pig on that altar, which would have been uh, very provoking, 
not only to God, but to all of the Jews. And then he put an end to the daily sacrifices. Antiochus Epiphanes, if you want to look it up. But clearly that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of this. Because Jesus is saying that they ought to look for something like this again. The abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be in the holy place. So there's another such abomination that leads to the temple's desolation and the end of sacrifices. Now the exact identification of this abomination of desolation is not our concern tonight. Many suggestions have been offered and I'm not going to get into that at all. But this much is clear. And I think only this much is really helpful. Jesus expected that his disciples would be able to recognize it. That they would see this and know that's what Jesus was talking about. The abomination of desolation where it ought not to be. So he expected that with some careful thought, let the reader understand that they would recognize it and then they would flee. And then also that it would be associated with the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies. This is where it's helpful to have the parallel passages. Because in Luke, we find slightly different, not slightly different, just the first part is different. The second part is the same. Language in Luke 21 is this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So they're associated somehow. And perhaps that was the abomination of desolation. I don't know. But that is what we know. So there's the first thing. There's a very clear sign that Jesus gives that when they see it, they were to flee to the mountains for safety. But the second thing that Jesus urges upon them is the urgency of this flight. Look at verses 15 and 16. After he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, he says, let him who is on the housetop or the rooftop, it would have been a flat roof, let him not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field, not go back to get his clothes. So if a man happened to be on the rooftop, and that was a common practice in those days, maybe he was praying at midday like Peter was. You can turn to Acts 10 and see that at midday, Peter goes on the roof to pray. So if a man should be on his rooftop and recognize that the time to flee had come, Jesus says, don't waste a moment. Don't even go down to gather any of your belongings. You go down from the stairs that would have been on the exterior of the house. Don't go back in your house even for a second. He says, flee. It's that urgent. Your life is more important than anything in your house that you might retrieve. But then he gives another picture. These are just illustrations he's giving. That if a man was in the field working, that he must not go back to grab his outer garment. The outer garment would have been worn. It says clothes in our text, but this is the outer garment that would have helped them at night when it was cooler. But as they're working in the day, he would have shed it. He would have thrown it somewhere. 
remembered where it was and he'd gone about, gone about working. Well, the time to flee is not then to go back and retrieve your cloak. He says, go and flee to the mountains. It's like the urgency of a fire in your house. Don't put your life at risk to gather your belongings. By all means, save your loved ones. But he's saying, don't stop for your belongings. Go. And it made me think of Lot and his family and how they must quickly escape to the mountains is what they were told, lest they be destroyed, lest they be consumed in the judgment that would fall upon the wicked city. So there's urgency. Flee to the mountains and waste no time. But then in verse 17, we have a little window into our Lord's heart. In verse 17, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Woe to them. As Jesus thinks about this flight and the urgency of the flight, he thinks about pregnant women and how difficult these days would be for them. And women who are nursing children and the challenges of such a flight in these days. So it causes pain in our Lord's heart as he thinks about it. And he says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing children in these days when they need to flee to the mountains immediately. And one man says that his heart melts at the thought of the hardships that they will surely face. And then we get to the tribulation of those days in verses 18 to 20, the great tribulation of those days. Now, Jesus foretells the tribulation, but not in detail. Look at verse 18. He says, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And again, we see how practical and pastoral are the concerns of our Lord because he says, pray to God in those days that your flight will not be in winter. Pray, pray to God that your flight in those days would not be in winter, the season of bad weather, which would make it very difficult to flee. And in particular, because the streams might be flooded from rains and therefore difficult or impossible to get through, to cross. Then he speaks of tribulation, which Matthew uses the language of the great tribulation of those days. But the great tribulation here is very clearly a reference to the unimaginable. And this is truly unimaginable for us. But the unimaginable suffering and anguish of these days in Judea leading up to the Roman siege of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the city and of the temple in A.D. 70. 
So there he says in very strong terms, in those days there will be tribulation that is unprecedented, such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time. And he says there will never be such tribulation on earth. So he doesn't describe it. He just says there will be great tribulation. And we do have in one famous historian, Josephus, it would be worth reading and be fascinating, but you can read of the horrors of these days in his Jewish wars or the wars of the Jews. And you can read about someone who was there at that time. Now, Josephus is not infallible, but he does give us a first-hand account of the horrors of these days. The Roman siege of Jerusalem lasted five months, resulted in famine. So they're trapped in the city, and they're starving them out. There's famine. And the suffering of many intolerable things, is the language Josephus uses, by those who stayed behind in the city, those who didn't flee while they had time. Josephus speaks of whippings. He speaks of all sorts of tortures, even crucifixions before the city walls. He says that their miseries grew worse and worse every day, resulting in the death, and this is his number, of 1.1 million in Jerusalem, mostly Jews. So when I say this is unimaginable, I mean this is unimaginable. It defies really our thought of the horrors of this day. And Jesus would have spared people from that. Flee to the mountains. And those who heeded his words were spared from this tribulation. Now, the slaughter here would have been even greater unless the Lord had shortened those days. And he adds, for the sake of the elect whom God chose. These were the elect chosen before the foundation of the world, but the elect who were in Judea at that time. So it was for their sake that he shortened these days. So the Romans here, were like an axe in God's hands to inflict judgment upon God's people, the Jews, for their wickedness. But God remains in control. He's wielding the axe, and you see this in the Old Testament as well, and he shortens the days. In wrath, he remembers mercy. So we've seen here the horrible, distressing days that immediately led up to the promised destruction of Jerusalem and the temple there. So that's the first major thing. See it in verses 14 to 20. Now, secondly, in verses 21 to 23, we have something of an aside, in parentheses, you could picture it, an instructive aside, which is in line with the warning of verses 5 to 6, when he was telling them, beware of deceivers, beware of false Christs. Jesus predicts that in those terrible days during the siege, deceivers would be raised up, pseudo-Christ and pseudo-prophets, announcing the arrival or the coming of Christ. And as before, Jesus warns them not to be led astray. So look at these verses, 21 to 23. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, 
He is there. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive with the purpose of deceiving, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. This is the idea that in the midst of such distress and tribulation, there would be deceivers who would come on the scene announcing that the Christ had come to deliver them. So there they are undergoing all of this famine and all of these horrors, and there were false prophets who would rise up and say, there's the Christ, there's our deliverance. He will pluck us out of this, and we will not undergo this great destruction. That's what's happening here. And such will be the deception strengthened by signs and wonders that even the elect, if possible, might be fooled and so caught up in the city's destruction. Now, again, this is where Josephus is helpful to confirm that, in fact, there were many deceivers in those days, saying, here's the deliverance of God. There's the Christ. And because of this, many were led astray, and that proved fatal to them. But the disciples, says Jesus, you've been warned. I have foretold you all that you need to know. I've not given you all the details. We don't have all the details we would like to know to satisfy our curiosity. But he says to his disciples, I've told you all things. You have everything that you need to know. So that's the aside, the instructive aside. Beware of those who will deceive in those difficult days. Now, the third major thing, and this is the last thing I want to look at as we're flying over this text. I hope it's not too quick of a flyby. But the third thing is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple described in the vivid language of Old Testament prophecy. So the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple described in Old Testament prophecy prophetical language, vivid Old Testament language. We have this in verses 24 and 25. Now, I think we'll look at this more next time. But tonight, I simply want to present my current understanding of the text, and I speak here with less certainty. But Jesus, according to himself, has now foretold all things leading up to the fulfillment of his words that not one magnificent, gigantic stone would be left upon another in that temple complex there that they were looking at. So he's told them all things leading up to that point. And all that now remains then is for the fulfillment of it to be told, which I believe is what we have a description of in figurative language in verses 24 and 25. We read, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Many see this, these astronomical disturbances, we could say, these cosmic disturbances. Many see these things as things that will accompany 
the second coming of Christ, which is then described in the following verses. So look at verse 26. We have all of these cosmic disturbances. And then verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. I believe that's clearly a reference to the second coming of Christ. But again, that's debated. So many see these things, though, these cosmic disturbances as something that will accompany the second coming of Christ. But I want us to think for a moment because Matthew tells us that what is described in verses 25 and 26 would happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. That's exactly quoting Matthew. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, which appears to be a clear reference to what Jesus has just been talking about, the great tribulation of those days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, immediately after the tribulation of those days, then these things are going to happen. So we ask the question when we come to something like this, can the darkening of the sun and the moon and the falling of the stars, can those things possibly refer to what took place immediately after those days of great tribulation in the first century? You catch the question, you see the challenge here? As we're wrestling with this, and I think there are several good ways to deal with this. I believe this way, at least now, to me, makes the most sense, so that's why I'm presenting it to you. But can it be said that these things happen immediately after those days in A.D. 70? Do we have any biblical warrant for describing such an event as the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in such terms? That's the question. And I think we do. And I'm going to give you just one key text tonight, and it would probably be good to turn there. It's in Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. Here we have... The burden, as it says in verse 1, or the oracle, the prophetic message against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So this is a word against Babylon, the Babylonian empire. And look, we'll begin at verse 6. But let me simply say, just to set this up, what, what we have here in Isaiah 13 is a foretelling of the destruction of Babylon, of how God would, to use the words of Isaiah in this chapter, God would stir up the Medes against them to be his instrument of wrath and judgment against Babylon to destroy them and to lay their land desolate. So that's what we see here in Isaiah 13. God is foretelling through Isaiah the prophet that Babylon will be destroyed and he will raise up the Medes to do that. And it will be an act of judgment against the wicked Babylon. And this did happen in 539 BC, just as it was foretold. So let's read here. Just going to read verses 6 to 10. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of judgment against Babylon. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, 
and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Almost the exact language that we find in Mark 13 upon the lips of our Lord. So I believe this cosmic language is not to be taken literally, at least here, not to say that it couldn't in another context be applied to the second coming, but here we're not to take it literally but figuratively as it is in Isaiah 13. And it conveys, as one man says, a powerful symbolism of political changes within world history. So what we have with the sun and the moon being darkened and the, and the stars falling, it's Old Testament prophetic language for events that we might call earth-shattering or earth-shaking with the added emphasis of divine judgment. And that's exactly what the destruction of Jerusalem was. It was to them earth-shattering. Remember, when Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, the disciples just assumed, well, that must mean the end of all things. And so this certainly was something that was earth-shattering, and it was an act of God's judgment against his people. Now back to Mark 13. I want to just help us a little bit to see the flow of the argument. I think this is important to understanding this part of, of Jesus' discourse. Look at verse 24. And at the beginning of verse 24, we have the word but in those days. And that should grab our attention, especially in the Greek. And I don't point this out much, but it's helpful to know that this is Allah, for those of you who know, and not day. So as in verse 23, where we also see but take heed, that's not the same word. That's day. So here in verse 24, the but is different. It's Allah, and it signals some kind of correction to what has come before. And I believe that correction is the false prophets who in those days... We're saying, here's the Christ. The desolation and the destruction are not going to fall upon us. God sent his Messiah, and he's going to deliver us. So Jesus has said that, and he says, no, but let me correct that. In those days, the whole cosmos will be shaken. And I believe that's an Old Testament prophetic way to say, Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. And there will be an end to the sacrifices. It will be a cosmic event, we could say. And it would be an act of judgment against God's people. So I believe, as we understand those things and as I understand this text now, that that's what we have in verses 24 and 25. Old Testament prophetic language describing what Jesus predicted, the destruction of the temple.
And next week, we're going to see, hopefully, how this fits in with the rest of the discourse. But for now, I'll just simply note that I think that this interpretation of verses 24 and 25 still allows for verses 26 and 27 to be a reference to the second coming. But most interpreters would put it all together and say, well, if verses 24 and 25 is 80-70, then the next two verses also have to be 80-70. Or if these two verses are a reference to the second coming, then the final two have to. So they put it all together. I think, and we'll see what another week of study leads me to, but I think this does not compel us to say that verses 26 and 27 also describe the destruction of Jerusalem when it says that the Son of Man will be coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So let's wrap this up. What does it say to us? Is this just of historical interest? I think it's fascinating. But is it relevant at all? Because we're not in AD 70, we're not Jews, we're not in Judea. These things are not going to fall upon us, they've already happened. So what does it say to us? Well, here's a few thoughts briefly as we conclude tonight. And the first thing is that the words of Christ are absolutely true and reliable and certain. And they cannot fall away. They cannot fail, cannot pass away, as Jesus himself will go on to say in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. We have an amazing confirmation of this, the truthfulness of the words of Christ in this discourse, because we see that Jesus predicted things accurately, that would happen in the future. And even the details, down to the signal that they should look for to flee to the mountains. So this confirms for us that yes, Jesus' word is reliable. His words will never fail. And it's sad, and it's even a little bit ironic, that a lot of people will look at this discourse and these predictions of Jesus And they will actually use this discourse to say that his words are not reliable. Because they will say, as they understand the text, and it's a misunderstanding, that Jesus predicted that he would come back and the end would be within a generation. And that obviously hasn't happened. We're still here. Therefore, Jesus was wrong and his words cannot be trusted. But that's a misunderstanding of the text. This text should confirm for us that Jesus' words are true and certain. A second thing, as so often in the Gospels, we see something of Christ's compassion. We see his heart here. And we see it in a couple details here. And the fact that he's warning his disciples and others who were in Judea to flee and to not get caught up in all of these horrific things. We could say he's stirred with compassion and he wants them to know. He says, listen to me. When you see this, go, flee to the mountains. There's compassion there. There's mercy there that we see in our Lord. We have a window into his heart. But we also see it in the details of verses 17 and 18. Remember, as he thought about what would happen in those days and how quick the flight would have to be, he's thinking of pregnant women. And he's thinking of women who are nursing their babies and the challenges that they would face. And he's stirred with compassion as he thinks of the difficulties that they would go through in those days. 
Even the fact that he would tell them, pray that it's not in winter. Pray that it's not in the season of inclement weather. There's compassion that we see in this text. A third thing, and this is true of every historical act of God's judgment, from the flood, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and on and on. Every historical act of God's judgment that we have recorded for us in the pages of Scripture, in those we are reminded of the righteous wrath of God against all sin, and that God is justly angry with the wicked. Think of the flood. He could have flooded the world over many, many times. And yet he made that covenant that he wouldn't do it. But he could have. So in this case, it's wrath that's poured out on his own people, Israel, for their great wickedness and for the rejection of Christ, who was in their midst preaching the gospel. And so great was the privilege of the Jews that the judgment that would fall on them in A.D. 70 brought about unprecedented tribulation because their privilege was so great. And yet, even in pouring out wrath upon Israel, what do we see? We see the mercy of God. We see that he shortened the days, that he remembered mercy, that he relented. And you see that again and again in the scriptures. So yes, God is a God of wrath. We see that here. God of judgment, but also of mercy. When he revealed his own name in Exodus 34, he said, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We read words like Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's our God. Yes, we see wrathful, and he brings judgment upon sin, but he's a God of mercy. And then here's a final thing. A day is coming when God's righteous wrath will no longer be restrained. And that's when Christ returns to judge the world in righteousness. And we'll consider that day, Lord willing, in the coming weeks as we continue working through this discourse. Who were those in Judea who escaped the great tribulation that Jesus predicted? It was only those who understood and heeded the words of Christ to flee to the mountains, to escape. And as surely as the promised judgment fell upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70, Christ's words are true. The promises and the warnings of the Bible are true. As sure as that judgment fell upon God's people in A.D. 70, a day is coming far greater in judgment than this day that fell upon Jerusalem when God's wrath was poured out upon his own people. What we have here is really just a preview of that day when Christ comes. And when the great judgment will happen. And now you have been told all things beforehand. If you're not in Christ here. If you're not a believer. I know many of you. You have parents who have told you the gospel again and again and again. And I want you to see in this a picture of the urgency of fleeing to Christ 
now. Because just like Jesus is saying, don't go back into your house, but flee to the mountains. Why wait another day before fleeing to Christ and finding refuge in him? So you know the truth, you know the gospel, you know the promises. Christ has told us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way of escape from God's righteous wrath that will fall upon sinners. He's the only escape in that great day. And if you go to him in faith, even tonight, flee to Christ. They were to flee to the mountains. I say to you, flee to Christ in faith without delay for the sake of your never dying soul so that you do not have to fear the day of judgment. Why? Because on the day of judgment, when Christ comes to judge, the judge of all will be your savior and he will be your friend. And this is why we sang that hymn. I need thee, precious Jesus, for I am full of sin. My soul is dark and guilty. My heart is dead within. I need the cleansing fountain where I can always flee the blood of Christ most precious, the sinner's perfect plea. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for these reminders, even of your wrath and righteousness. But Lord, we thank you for the reminders of your mercy in Christ. Thank you for these words from the lips of your own son. And we pray that we would heed them, especially that all of us would seek our refuge in Christ and cling to him. Lord, we have sinned against you, but we thank you that there is forgiveness with you, that you have made a way of escape. Lord, we pray that all would come to Christ, that you would draw them tonight, that you would use these events in history in AD 70 to awaken some, to give a glimpse of something of what that day will look like when Christ returns. Lord, we pray that we would all be ready. Thank you for these moments in your word. We pray for anything that is not true or accurate. Lord, that you would bring it to light and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.